This is W-O-W-D-L-P, Tacoma Park. People get ready, there's a train coming. You don't need no baggage, you just get on board. All you need is faith to hear the diesels humming. You don't need no ticket, you just thank the Lord. And this is Artist Experience. I'm Sheila Blake, and I'm here with my husband, Peter Blake, and my radio partner and friend, Tom Sinakis. Good morning, everyone. We at WOWD Tacoma Radio are celebrating Black History Month. Today on the Artist Experience Radio Show, we have a special show to discuss some of our favorite black artists, artists that Sheila and I and Peter have kept their eyes on throughout our careers and artists we enjoy looking at. Sheila and I got an early start on the celebration of Black History Month with two important programs in the last month, and so highlighting two outstanding art exhibitions that recently ended at the Phillips Collection. These were David Driscoll and Alma Thomas. On our last show, uh, we talked about David Driscoll, who's a curator, art historian, and visual artist who became the principal source for African-American artists to help place them in the predominantly white discourse of contemporary art. And Alma Thomas, who is an abstract painter whose visions with color were both grounded in the times and innovative, looking towards the future. They were artists who developed strategies, either consciously or unconsciously, to, ve- to develop as artists true to their culture and also fitting into the white art world, which was as impossible to enter as it was to set out to be a black movie star. They certainly haven't been included in any lists of the well-known painters during their time, but their work is now being celebrated because we're catching up with what we left out and the times they are changing. So today, I'm going to talk about some favorite contemporary artists that are better known. We're going to start off with Peter reading a poem by Nikki Giovanni. This is um, her poem, BLK History Month. If Black History Month is not viable, then wind does not carry the seeds and drop them on fertile ground. Rain does not dampen the land and encourage the seeds to root. Sun does not warm the earth and kiss the seedlings and tell them plain, you're as good as anybody else. You've got a place here too. That's beautiful, Peter. Thank you for sharing that. Well, I subtitled this program here on the Artist Experience Radio Show, What You Gotta Know, You Have to Find Out for Yourself. When I was thinking about doing the show, I was reflecting on how many holes in my education going into and through college existed. There are glaring omissions about art and culture that I was unfamiliar with. One example is this. When I was young, I was absolutely fascinated by historical art and artifacts from ancient cultures. When I went to the Brooklyn Museum and the Metropolitan Museum, for example, I would stare at the costumes and masks and textiles of cultures around the globe. The African masks, the Polynesian sculpted canoes, the art of the totem from indigenous people from the upper northwest 
in the U.S. and Canada. I was in like a dreamlike daze about the art and craft of these creative pieces of art made by these people. Then I went to college, and, and these groups of people and their art was not talked about in any of the art classes. I mean, they talked about Picasso when they discussed cubism and the African mask. It occurred to me, did these people stop making art altogether? Like all of a sudden, like all these centuries went by. Sheila, did this come to mind with uh, Peter when you when you were young? Well, I was just struggling to learn to identify anger from Manet for the exam. <laughs> Women with turbans, anger. Lots of black and white looking like a stage set, Manet. <laughs> I was always so tired in art history that I would fall asleep to the hum of the slide projector. Our professor was a really boring guy with a heavy German accent named Dr. Heckscher. During one of his slide lectures, he woke me up from my nap and said, Did you read the book? And I nodded, but I probably hadn't. And he yelled, Well, listen to the man that wrote it. Oh, man! <laughs> I really didn't see the point of any of it until I was looking through a book of Van Gogh paintings and I was simply transfixed by the wheat field, and that changed me. I could make the case that until that moment, the names and paintings by European men had nothing to do with anything I was thinking about. I just wanted to paint. And it was too early for me even to absorb those white men that they were the only humans who had the God-given genius to become artists in the first place. But I learned that pretty soon. Wow, wow, that's an interesting insight. Well, <laughs> since college is a great place to explore things you want to, and the college years collectively can be a great substrate to investigate and change. I realized if you want to experience culture, you really have to do it for yourself. College might give you a direction, and colleges certainly uh, could provide you with, with some answers to an intellectual quest or curiosity, but not all of them. I'm a firm believer in education. I have been an educator for almost 30 years on the college level. But there are two kinds of education. One of them I call a scholastic education towards personal development. I also could call it an academic education. And then there's what I call a cultural education towards personal development, and I like to call it cultural shaping and forming. Let me explain the difference. All the peoples of this earth come from a deep and beautiful cultural legacy. I believe this is a truth. This has nothing to do with a scholastic education. One takes the courses in college and completes them, and that's good enough as far as education goes. But then there are others but fuel their education on the more experiential level, which may be more than just an academic education. This is why uh, when a person knows who they are in a society and where they come from and where they're going and understanding their own cultural power or the power in another culture, this is a this is a person that seeks to shape themselves. Now that's the, the key right there. Culturally shape oneself. They look beyond themselves in areas of history and culture. They, they learn about diversity and difference and about the other beautiful human beings around them. This does not always happen in solely in an academic educational environment. And that's said to say, but I think it's true. 
And the artists that we're talking about today sought out for themselves every opportunity to educate themselves on every level with all the difficulties that they had. They always had the target and uh, of what they wanted. And I think that says something about the artists we're talking about today. It certainly does. Boy, that was good. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Well, there are so many ways to learn. In high school, I worked really hard because I had to keep up with my friends. I was expected to go to college, which my parents saw as a problem because they didn't know who or what I was. was. So they sent me to the Stevens Institute of Technology in Hoboken, New Jersey, where I took buses and trains and for three successive days while I took these tests given by a man in a white lab coat with an alarm clock. Then he had a conference with my parents and me. The pronouncement was that I had an inferiority complex and I didn't have the brains to be competitive or the talent to be an artist. This was based on a test with rectangles with a couple of lines in them and you had to make something, a sailboat, rain, out of the lines. So I was sentenced to the University of Wisconsin to become an (laughs) occupational therapist. (laughs) This was in the 1950s before Wisconsin was radicalized. And occupational therapy was to subtitled basket weaving. It felt like a death sentence, but I did go. It was a huge school. Sororities and fraternities ruled, and I couldn't join a sorority, partly because the only ones open to me were Jewish, and partly because I couldn't drink enough beer. And the whole thing was like an alien foreign country. I sort of shut down. Actually, I really did shut down. I couldn't learn anything. I needed good grades to transfer, so I went to each of my teachers, and I asked them for A's and B's. (laughs) I said, it's just a letter for you, but it is really crucial for me. And they all did what I asked, (laughs) except my geography teacher, who was unmoved by my pleading and held to his principles. And I studied like a maniac and brought up my grade to a C. And strangely, I still use what I learned in that class. I had 26 blind dates. And I took art. We had a model, a middle-aged woman with glasses. Front, turn. Side, turn. Back, turn. That was the class. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Later, I learned the term cultural displacement. This is currently a term used to describe the result of a school population or a neighborhood that's changing because of an influx of people from an outside culture. But it's also what can happen when a child is taken out of her own home in Queens and put in a desolate school in the middle of frozen Wisconsin. (laughs) At the end of the school year, I came home on academic probation and got a job as a typist. I had to live with my parents since no one was going to shell out any money for my education after I had my chance. And then a miracle happened. A miracle. Sometime at the end of the summer, in desperation, I applied to take the test for Cooper Union Art School, and I was accepted, and it was free. And Bravo. The, oh, <laughs> the pearly gates opened. From the first day, I learned about the importance of art, the importance of being an artist. And even though with perspective, I know now that as girls, we weren't admitted to the after-school mentorship of our teachers Just being there was the most powerful influence on my sense of myself. Wow. So you're bringing up your own experiences of cultural displacement 
alienation and miraculous salvation through art. That's right. It, it happened to you that way. And of course, it's, it, you know, it's through our own experiences that we're able to connect with the experience of others. You know, whether you're watching King Lear or reading history. And the history that we're exploring today, one of the highlights is the movement in the 1920s and 30s called the Harlem Renaissance. The Harlem Renaissance was a communal effort to open doors. Interestingly, it was formed with both men and women. And it wasn't just Harlem. D.C. had a big part in it, too, uh, with Langston Hughes, uh, Zora Neale Hurston, Alain Locke, uh, Duke Ellington, Gwendolyn Bennett, Thelma Duncans, and others. But Harlem Renaissance was, you know, really, that is such a great name. And it became the name that everybody knew it by. I think at the time the movement was called by the people in it The New Negro, which was the title of a book by Alain Locke, who was a brilliant writer, a student of George Santayana at Harvard. Um, he became a professor at Howard. And uh, Locke, of course, had lived with discrimination all his life. And he and W.E.B. Du Bois, who went to Harvard 20 years before him, uh, developed a framework for how black Americans would change American society so that they would be admitted. Because they identified how important it was to be admitted, how remaining separated was sort of a death, a cultural death. We don't have time to, today to summarize their thought. We'll just point you to their work, which rewards reading even today. Alain Locke and W.E.B. Du Bois. One of the lessons from their work is that black Americans were going to have to work hard to open the doors that were closed. Hard, necessary work. And some of that work was going to be done by art. Art is not a luxury only for the rich and idle. It is not a frill. Black Americans had something important to communicate to themselves and to the white people who at that time romanticized themselves as Anglo-Saxons. Well, this is the Autism Experience radio program. I'm Tom Ksenakis with my hosts, Sheila Blake and Peter Blake. And if you just joined us, um, you're at WOW Tacoma Radio 94.3. And today, in honor of Black History Month, we are discussing black artists that Sheila and I have studied and enjoyed very much. We enthusiastically had shows about the works of David Driscoll and Alma Thomas that were concurrent at the Phillips Collection. Both these African-American artists left a lasting legacy in the D.C. metro area and nationally. Today we're talking about Henry Osawa Tanner, Aaron Douglas, Charles White, Carrie James Marshall, and Amy Sherald. In celebration of this, I wanted to talk about the first African-American artist that I ever learned about in college. Nothing was ever uttered about him in class, but I learned about him by studying another artist that was a little more famous in art circles, and that was Thomas Aikens. The artist is Henry Osawa Tanner from uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He lived from 1859 to 1937. 
and he died in Paris, France. This is an artist that sought for himself education and cultural shaping that he had to work for very hard amid the scourge of racism that was levied to an African-American artist at the end of the 19th century in America and even in Europe. His mighty ambition, work ethic, and talent brought him great rewards even with these adversities, and he had a beautiful life. In and around 1970 and 1971, a series of books came out by Watson Guptill Book Publishers on American watercolor painters. It was in these books that I either saw the name or an image of Henry Osawa Tanner. But I had to find out who he was by myself because nobody ever mentioned about him. And he was a, a, a black artist in the studio of Thomas Aikens. I found that very curious because Thomas Aikens was a a progressive yet irascible and controversial Philadelphia artist and educator at the Pennsylvania Academy for the Fine Arts. And that intrigued me because he wasn't the easiest guy to get along with. I remember seeing Henry Osawa Tanner's biblical narratives, which fascinated me, and they actually still do. They were mysterious in the light of his works that I found compelling by someone like myself who enjoys religious and spiritual subjects. Henry Osawa Tanner was an American artist with an incredibly distinguished and successful family that came from Pittsburgh originally, but later settled in Philadelphia. His father, Benjamin Tucker Tanner, was a bishop in the African Methodist Episcopal Church, and his mother was born into slavery. And she escaped on the Underground Railroad, and his father was an outspoken political activist supporting the abolition of slavery, and his father was also a friend of Frederick Douglass, who was an admirer of art, his father was also critical of Frederick Douglass at time. Although Henry Osawa Tanner was discouraged from being an artist, he decided at age 13 that's what he wanted to do. And I find that very amazing. Well, <clears throat> spots in art schools and apprentice programs were very rare for black artists in those times. In 1879, Tanner enrolled as the first black student at the Pennsylvania Academy of Arts, and he was 20 years old. And you know what they say, timing is everything, and Tanner was fortunate to have Thomas Aikens as his instructor. Aikens promoted new ways of teaching with live models, which were male and female, which was un unusual at the time. And also, he uh, talked about art education on anatomy and dissection, and also depicting these subjects. Aiken's system was a great departure from the old ways of the American art academies that were modeled after the European ones. But Aikens himself was a controversial instructor, and he was known to develop relationships with his students outside of the classroom. I think you know what I mean by that. And at the academy, he became friends with another fine American painter. Uh, and, and Tanner as well, with, with the great American educator Robert Henry, who later was the founding member of the Ashcan School in New York City. Uh, he was another irascible creature, for, for the sure. So uh, Tanner had to have some gumption to be hanging around with these, uh, I have to say, you know, kind of rough-and-tumble artists from Philadelphia. Well... <laughs> I'd like to mention that, in case you haven't noticed, there's not just a bias, 
but a wall of artists and curators and collectors who were white men, and occasionally, very occasionally, a black man was allowed in. Now, though, there are many women being appointed as museum directors. Glenstone, our contemporary jewel, uh, their collection has many women and black and Latino artists that are always being shown. Well, here's another poem. This one by Langston Hughes. To be somebody. Little girl dreaming of a baby grand piano, not knowing there's a Steinway bigger, bigger. Dreaming of a baby grand to play that stretches paddle-tailed across the floor, not standing upright like a bad boy in the corner, but sending music up the stairs and down the stairs and out the door to confound even Hazel Scott, who might be passing. Oh, little boy, dreaming of the boxing gloves Joe Lewis wore, the gloves that sent two dozen men to the floor. Knockout, bam, bop, mop. There's always room, they say, at the top. Okay, this this poem presents two scenes of black life, a girl, then a boy, dreaming of becoming somebody when they grow up. So much of the art of black 20th century artists was based in scenes of life from their community. We see here that art acts against erasure, against disappearing. Art makes sure that there are images of your people as precious in the world. Art and literature are not solitary pursuits. They pitch people towards one another with news. This is what this program is about. People are often surprised when they hear about the Artist Experience radio show, thinking there's not much to talk about. But truly, we can be in completely engaged in conversation about what Cezanne was doing, how he called up a plate of lemons like a spirit, <laughs> yeah, during our cocktail hour, we often have a book. We do have a book open to look at some painting while we're having our Manhattans. Wow. <laughs> Great. Here's an idea we should address. An attractive idea, alluring, that has stood in the way of us finding satisfaction and stimulation in the art of excluded groups, women and ethnic minorities. This is... The elevation of the identity of the artist from craftsman and communicator, a poet of common life, to the status of genius, priest, demigod, a wild, mad spirit who pulls off the veils of illusion to reveal the twisting, luminescent system beneath our civilization. This is the picture of the artist in the mid-century, mid-20th century. Think back to the 50s. Men, white men, as the dominant power, the professors and curators, would accept such visions only from other white men. This is just now changing, slowly. There was, and still is, a resistance from men who control the art world to take their dose of spiritual uplift from a woman. I think that's still an issue. The exclusion of black Americans from the art world was a reflection of the general attitude of white Americans in the 20th century, their ignorance and discomfort with African-American life. But that is changing. The solution is similar in both cases, more women curators and writers, and more African-American curators and writers. So Tom, Henry Tanner, 
like other black artists of the 1890s, did not have the exposure to the Harlem Renaissance and did not drink in the spirit of black pride that the movement generated. Is that right? Well, yes, yeah, sure it is. I mean, he's he comes before the the Harlem Renaissance, which was a great opportunity to unify the the arts in general, not just you know the visual arts, dance, theater, um, poetry. So yes, he was before that, and and it was so there were so few chances for opportunity for uh, an African American visual artist at the time, and he was like a, you know a needle in the haystack to get found and 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 to be recognized for all the talent that he had. So he looked at Europe for other possibilities, and there were several African American artists that did at the time. And I always think about Josephine Baker, right, going to Paris, you know, maybe 30 years later, looking for an opportunity and an audience. And it's true, racism did exist in Europe as well. But Paris was a little more of an open society and a little more possibly, uh, if you will, you know, basically giving, giving opportunity where very little had been found. And I'm sure the French heartland was not as opening and uh, accepting and open-minded as Paris was. But Henry uh, Osawa Tanner was just an incredibly gifted art student, and he was also very sensitive, not only physically, but emotionally as well. And he got ill in art school, and he started selling his work on his own. And then he was, you know, a victim of racism. Uh, in, in, in Philadelphia, then he went to Atlanta, he found some patrons, uh, he had an unsuccessful business in photography, and he wrote a very important autobiography titled The Story of an Artist's Life, describing his struggles with racism that often squelched his ambition as an artist and emotionally degraded him, and it brought him much pain. And then finally he'd had it and had an opportunity, and in 1891 he went to France, and he joined the American Art Students Club. He loved Parisian life. He returned home for only a brief time in, uh, to the U.S. on and off. He also got, uh, he, he was married in, in, um, in Paris as well. But let's talk a little about his art and his legacy. Well, he went to Europe, and again, he was looking at other cultures. He was looking to educate himself in art history. So he went to all the great museums in, in Paris, and he was a good student of that. He studied the works. He His early painting style was influenced by Thomas Aikens, who was a good painter himself, but also notable French artists. And he was a deeply spiritual man, and his early works were really very well acclaimed in France, like Daniel in the da uh, Lion's Den, The Raising of Lazarus, and The Annunciation. Well, <clears throat> and World War I came down the pike, and he was in Paris. He worked for the Red Cross Information Department, and he w worked so hard that he actually was awarded the Knight of the Legion of Honor by the French state in 1923. He caught the eye of the collector and, and critics like Rodman Wanamaker, the, the founder of the Wanamaker department store in Philadelphia, which later became Macy's, and then in Atlanta by J.J. Haverty, 
uh, who is the founder of Haverty's Furniture, which still exists, and uh, one of the founders of the High Museum, and, and they became very knowledgeable of his work in Paris. So he began to travel, he began, Tanner was looking at other places like the Levant, North Africa, and he became part of a European look at Orientalism, which uh, made his work very much mysterious and powerful. And not to mention he was, the works were very well painted. He had a loose painted work, he had some quick brush stroke, he used a lot of neutral tones and muted tones. He had a wonderful sense of light, which was very true for those Orientalist painters of Europe at the time. But then he also could paint very, very tightly and meticulously and look at details. And that's a gift that I like to call an artist with two kinds of hands. He could be loose and free with the brush, but he could also could be tight and meticulous. And um, I find his works really spiritually moving, and they're definitely related to the exciting works of Courbet and Delacroix, and whom works he studied in Paris. And importantly, Tanner, and this is really important to me, mentored a host of African-American artists that came to Paris to experience European life and art. He guided a lot of um, bl black artists that were coming to Paris to see the interactions of French society with them. Important African-American artists like William Edward Scott, William Harper, Palmer Hayden. These are really fine artists. And of course, Hale Woodruff, another wonderful artist. So his willingness to mentor these artists, I think is a really important part of his legacy. So in other words... He was educating not only the Europeans on the talent of an African-American artist, but he was all, also educating his own. And I think that re was really important in that time because mm. there weren't many out there doing that. Yep. Well, that's so interesting. I'm going to talk about Lois Malu Jones. Now, Lois, I have heard that name pronounced Lois, but I'm couldn't really nail that down so I'm going to just say Lois and if I'm wrong I stand corrected the, she's the African American artist who taught at Howard University for 47 years and she went to Paris to further her studies and exposure to art as well there she was seeing the influence of African art like on Picasso his masks and his stylized figures and she said hey those are my people those are my symbols so she took them for her own. There's a beautiful new acquisition in the front hall of the American Art Museum in D.C. right now. William H. Johnson, also well represented at the American Art Museum, was trained as a representational painter, but he saw the same influences as Lois Muller-Jones when, when he went to Paris. The stylized African blues, jazzy influences, colors, they're lively. They're a far cry from when he started, where he was really very uh, uh, traditional. Beautiful painting, though. And these artists needed to go to Paris, where they could be freer, and they could feel for themselves the status of an artist and see the innovations of modernism, which was the ticket. So writers and critics, which is what we might be, will continue to unearth African-American painters and assume responsibility for bringing them to the public. We've talked about this before, 
And as with any huge and necessary social change, we have to expand our minds to learn and accept and enrich, enrich ourselves with new vision. This is not news to anyone, but when I was a kid, there were so many people who were typecast and forbidden to be seen as equals, and a lot has changed before our eyes, especially on television. TV broadcasters and commentators who are now women, different ethnicities, which in the 1950s and even the 60s, it was taken for granted that women wouldn't have the gravitas to be heard and taken seriously like as a TV anchor that gay men would be erased, and now we have Anderson Cooper as a gay single dad. And we, or many of us, have changed, and we're the winners for that. And in the fine arts, much that has been hidden has been brought to light. Going back to what we were talking about earlier, here's an example. Wayne Tebow, the California painter who died last month at 101, he's being revered in the art world. He's quite a painter, really a big-time painter. He gave a talk at the Phillips Collection some years ago. These annual talks are a great honor. His theme was to show images of the hundred artists who had influenced him. And there was one woman artist, guess who? Georgia O'Keeffe. And no African-American artist. This is true. And I didn't say anything because I didn't want to mess things up. And neither did anyone else, or maybe they didn't think about it. It's getting better. It's not great. But we're getting to see women represented more. And a few African-American artists, but it's going to take a long time. I didn't even know that Wayne Tebow died. (laughs) He died a couple of weeks ago. Welcome back. This is Artist Experience. I'm Sheila Blake with our co-host, Tom Sinakis. If you just joined us, you are listening to the Artist Experience radio program here at WOWD Tacoma Radio 94.3 FM. Today, in honor of Black History Month, we are discussing black artists that Tom and I have studied and enjoyed very much. We enthusiastically had two shows about the works of David Driscoll and Alma Thomas, that were concurrently shown at the Phillips Collection. Both these African-American artists left lasting legacies here and in the D.C. metro area and nationally. Today, we are talking about Henry Osawa Tanner, Charles White, and Aaron Douglas, Amy Sherald, and Carrie James Marshall. Well, let's begin the second half of our show quoting a 2018 essay from Claire Massoud, a novelist. In these relentlessly dark and riven times, I find myself beset by a near ravenous hunger for beauty. We have so much to learn. The ideals that have shaped my entire life thus far have been called into question by the election of this so-called president. They are ideals worth fighting for, a faith, as Martin Luther King assured us, that the long arc of history bends toward justice that societies have the desire and capacity for improvement, 
that reflection and communication will foster greater compassion, and a belief that one of the most powerful paths to progress is through art and literature. I have believed in the value of knowledge and truth, and I have believed that the quality of a life is not measured by money, celebrity, or material goods, but by richness of mind, generosity of spirit, and by meaningful human relationships. When Kerry James Marshall was a black kid living in Los Angeles, he was born in 1955, he went to L.A. County Museum of Art, and he decided right then and there he would have a painting on the wall of the museum. So that tells you a lot. He was really smart. He was ambitious. He didn't see his color as an insurmountable barrier. And in 1993, the museum purchased a 10 by 10 and a half foot painting of his. He was 58 years old. When Carrie James Marshall was accepted at the Otis Institute of Art in LA as a young college kid, he was so happy. He was looking forward to learning all the things that a painter needs to know, all the basics, drawing, color, composition, technique, only to find that in the 1970s, the current art trend was conceptualism. <laughs> so no one was teaching any of that anymore. They were teaching ideas. There's a terrific book that was written quite a while ago by Tom Wolfe called The Painted Word, which had a great time making fun of the excessive insularity of the art world and its dependence on what he saw as faddish critical theory. So everything that Marshall wanted to learn was thrown out of the window. He had a good time, though. He was playing volleyball and socializing. But he had to get his education from books, looking at paintings, and he did. He has a really brilliant analytical mind. He gave himself a great education. But of course, he found a huge missing hole in the history of art, the hole where there were no black people. He asked the most important question, why is the world the way it is and who says it should be so? And that takes me back to my original thought about the long way we have come to accept images other than the images of white men, and how very far we still have to go. But Carrie James Marshall took it on. The challenge for black artists in general is trying to find a place for themselves in the art world and in a history that did not include them as participants in the formulation of its foundational ideas. There's a class structure that a large number of black artists don't come from. The challenge has been trying to figure out a way to get inside, but to come in with imagery that has black subject matter or black subjects by a person who is black. The resistance to bringing in these images is the notion that the black body can never really be a universal body. With a black body in a picture, people automatically tend to limit their perception of it, believing it is only relevant to black people. A remedy to that marginalization for African-American artists was to do abstract work. Marshall developed a strategy that would tell stories of black life. He would include many styles in his paintings. It's very interesting because they're not copies of styles, they're referring to styles. It is really, this is so rich. And that his people would all be black, and this time we mean the color black, that stylization takes him out of genre painting 
and moves the people into their own universe of symbols, art historical references, and the situations of the life of African Americans. Moving the paintings themselves into postmodernism, and so worthy of serious attention by the art writers and curators. Well, his painting, De Style, it's S-T-Y-L-E, is a pun on De Style, D-E-S-T-I-J-L, which is the art movement in Holland that was dedicated to pure abstraction, including Mondrian and many painters. Well, there's some part of Marshall's that is a simplification, but the idea of a beauty shop and calling it de style is very clever. Extremely so. <laughs> at some point, he did work at a beauty shop with that name and reflected in the window in this pa- painting is probably the house of style. He uses black silhouettes with very minimal features, which is a device that the art- artist Cara Walker used in her depiction of Civil War life. He use, also uses like like the electric cord strung, strung across the top as a sort of decoration. And the mirror composition has a reference to Manet's bar at the Folie Bougère. I, I wanted to say that when you're looking at an artist that is compl- as complex as James Carey Marshall, you seek in all kinds of artistic references, and they may be conscious or unconscious because it's all stuff he's been looking at. So there's a lot of reference to Manet, who is, who also used black, and his lively, strange composition, cutting three things into three horizontal sections and keeping the activity mostly in the mirror in the middle. That is a Manet device. It's so interesting to see what artists he has absorbed into his visions. The top part has something of Diebenkorn and his Ocean Park paintings, where Diebenkorn would save the top horizontal strip as a kind of transom window to let the air in. Something that I think is weird is his unexpected composition. He has a lot of stuff, and he wants to put it all in his paintings, and he's able to do that by resolving them into flat shapes. But he also keeps things in constant motion. He says, Black people occupy a space, even mundane spaces, in the most fascinating ways. Style is such an integral part of what black people do. And just walking is not a simple thing. You gotta walk with style. You gotta talk with a certain rhythm. You gotta do things with some flair. And so, in the paintings, this is a quote from him, I try to enact that same tendency toward the theatrical that seems to be so integral a part of the black cultural body. Well, thank you for that, yes. And um, again, he's, he's, uh, he's a very bright you know, artist using all these historical references. Well, in 1990, I got a job teaching at Old Dominion University in the magnet program of very gifted students that came to Old Dominion University in the Tidewater area. And I taught in this drawing room that had a great poster in the back 
of the room by a window, and I stared at that poster for many semesters. And initially I said, I know I've seen the work by this artist somewhere, but I couldn't place the name. The graphic power of this work knocked me out. And the poster was by the great artist Aaron Douglas, and the work was titled Into Bondage from 1936. Then I recall I had seen the work by the artist at the Met, and it inspired me in 1979, this style by Aaron Douglas, when I took a graphic design course at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. The, the work that inspired me was called Let My People Go from 1935 to 1939. And I specifically remember doing a, a menu cover as a class assignment for a fictitious eatery called The Country Inn in the style of Aaron Douglas. And it was the best work I did that semester and the only project that my professor liked. And so I thank Aaron Douglas for this inspiration. And then we fast forward to 1990 when, you know, I was making very personal art concerned about my identity. And here I was looking at the poster again by Aaron Douglas into bondage. It's very fortuitous for me, as I, I now had a creative soulmate in Aaron Douglas, um, who was painting about his people and his identity as an African American. Well, this kind of event uh, can be important in the development of any artist, which at the time I was looking for a personal vision and identity. So it's interesting that looking at Aaron Douglas, a black man, it helped me kind of work out some of my personal vision as an artist, a young artist, searching for that. So, uh, you know, that's really, really important. So in other words, because uh, Aaron Douglas was making uh, <clears throat> works about the history of his people, it, that doesn't mean it's just about, you know, a black Americans, African Americans. It's about all people. And I think that to me is a really, really important thing. Wow. Well, there's there's a great work by Douglas in the National Gallery of Art East Wing called Judgment Day, and it's on the ground floor, and it is wonderful. Yeah, it's it a really beautiful is. painting, absolutely. Yeah. And, and this is a, an artist with great power. He was a painter, a muralist, and an illustrator, and he had an interesting life. He was born in Topeka, Kansas in 1899, and he died in Nashville, Tennessee in 1979. He was a powerhouse of the Harlem Renaissance and an important artist addressing social issues of race, segregation, and African-centric identity, which was very important to me. His beautiful graphic works uh, influenced artists for many years and still today. And he was the founder of the art department at Fisk University in Nashville in 1944. Well, Douglas left Kansas... For Detroit, and he took an art class at the Detroit Museum of Art. And around World War One, he was denied entry into the Student Army Training Corps at the University of Nebraska. And then again, like timing is everything. Like I said, in 1925, he stopped in in Harlem on his way to Paris, and he he just got soaked into the energy of the Harlem Renaissance. In, in, in Harlem, he studied with the German portraitist Weinold Ries, and who actually encouraged him to address African-centric themes. So that's another like great moment in his life. By 1927, his career 
just took off, creating murals. And in 1928, he received money from the Alfred Bonds or the Alfred Bonds Collection in Philadelphia. And uh, his work was included in, in a very important exhibition called Contemporary Negro Art. And as a muralist, he gained recognition initially, and then he was getting these commissions at all these universities, mostly in the South. And he, and he was really kind of one that was in, introducing like a black education centers and cultural centers at Fisk University and elsewhere. And Aaron Douglas was not only an incredible artist, but he was also an influential educator. And during the Great Depression, he worked on many public murals that depicted African-American experience, such as his famous painting, Aspects of Negro Life. His illustrative visuals were educating the public, the general public, everyone, of what African-American life was. And his work was public, prominent and powerful. And uh, his works are really extremely balanced with a great sense of tonal range of cues. He definitely knew his color theory, and they had a great graphic power. His gradations of color on a hue or value scale were a visual language that he left his mark on, not only as an illustrator, but as an educator. He knew about color and he knew how to use it. His use of transparencies, silhouettes, graphic shapes and symbols, they create a visual power, making his message very clear and very beautiful. We saw that at the D David Driscoll show, remember, at the Phillips? Yes, there was one actually absolutely. an homage to basically Aaron Douglas. Yes. And also I think of a Carol Walker, was we just talked about, uh, Sheila just talked about, was also must have been influenced by Aaron Douglas' uh, use of the graphic silhouette. And Douglas caught my attention as an artist, uh, again, um, in addressing one's identity and essence with a visual language that one can call one's own. And his uh, wonderful aesthetic to me has always affected me, and I thank him for that great art. Mm. Well, this is Artist Experience. I'm Sheila Blake with Tom Sinakis and Peter Blake. You're listening to our program here at WOWD Tacoma Radio 94.3 FM, and we are talking about Black History Month and discussing black artists that we love. Uh, I had seen Emmy... Amy Sherald's painting in the Smithsonian Annual Portrait Show when she won the first prize in the 2016 Outwin Buchever Portrait Competition and uh, in the National Portrait Gallery in Washington. And it was so beautiful. And it was not like anything else. It's a really big, gorgeous painting. It's called Miss Everything, Unsuppressed Deliverance. And it's of a woman with gray-toned skin and an elegant blue and white outfit with white gloves and an oversized teacup. And she has those white gloves uh, with her delicate hands holding the teacup. The colors are flat. They're on a blue-green, sort of lightly textured background. And the lines are so fluid that there's a lifelike but otherworldly breathing portrait but it's monumental in its large scale and simple composition. You confront the sitter straight on, and she has dignity and beauty and attitude at the same time. It was actually Michelle Obama 
who plucked her out of obscurity when she was being shown a portfolio of African-American artists who she would select to do her official portrait. And not finding what she wanted, they said, well, wait a minute, we, we have some, uh, some pictures here by Amy Sherald. And when Michelle Obama saw them, she just said yes immediately. They, she met her and she knew she was the one. So Amy Sherald was born in 1973 in Columbus, Georgia. She earned an honorary, honorary doctorate at MICA. She said, When I finally came across the black and white photography, I realized I was setting these people up and recreating the same kind of quietness and dignity that I saw in these photographs that black families were having taken of them. I just recognized my work inside of these photographs and started to go further. Amy Sherald documents contemporary African-American experience in the United States. The, her use of gray tones for skin is, is somehow makes the people even more universal. And then she uses beautiful, bright colors of, for clothing and patterns against a flat background. These paintings are incredible. I can say that Sherald and Barclay Hendricks and Kahindi Wiley and Carrie James Marshall are all doing fine things with painting that are original and stunning in their scale and messages. They all use clothing and pattern as key elements. They are all reaching new ground and telling stories and exalting black life. But Amy Sherald is a woman. Her paintings are so loving. They are color feasts. I just love them so much. The difference that I see between men and women is that men are telling you things. But Sherald, she goes that step further and that her portraits are filled with love. It's in the way she paints. Look at those faces and those clothes. Before her portrait of Michelle, she could barely make the rent on her studio. She was actually diagnosed with congestive heart failure when she was young, and she received a heart transplant when she was 39. In December 2020, her piece, The Bathers, from 2015, was sold at auction for $4 million. $265,000, which was nearly 30 times the pre-sale estimate. And so she, she just had an amazing show at the Hauser and Worth Gallery. And everything she infuses her paintings with, especially dignity and fun, the things she wants for black people are in her. Well, Amy Sherrill took the uh, world by storm as a young artist at the Maryland Institute College of Art. And actually, she went to the Hofburger School of Painting with Grace Hardigan that I graduated from. And I have been reading about her rise to fame through the Micro alumni publications. And her ascent in the art world was surely not easy. And she, she has a lovely and unique graphic style that Sheila so uh, lovely described. And, and I really have admired her work. And yes, her career has been curtailed by some health issues, and I sure hope that she's creating these fabulous works again with the vigor and power that she once did. And I'm a definite fan of her work, and the scale and color usage, as Sheila describes, are beautiful. Well, remember, I, su I subtitled the program here at the Artist Experience Radio Show, what you got to know, you got to find out for yourself. And the last artist I'm going to talk about was introduced to me actually by a student of mine. 
I'd never heard of him before. And one of the great riches of teaching is that you learn from your students. And I certainly have. And again, this was an artist that had never been taught to me in college. In a drawing class, a student showed me a picture in a book of drawing by the great African-American artist Charles White. I was impressed, and I went out to find about my, uh, on my own on who this guy was. And since I was teaching drawing, and at that time specifically drawing a project with hands, Charles White was the man I needed to see. Hands are difficult to draw for a host of reasons. For one, hands have a lot of moving parts. But the good news is that when you draw a hand, your subject is right here. It's on the other hand, right? You're holding the pencil in one hand, and you've got the subject in the other hand. Well, the opposite hand is what you want to draw, and it's a very difficult thing to do. And I've been doing it for almost 40 years in several media. And Charles White is one of the most incredible artists that drew hands. He was from Chicago. And he was born in 1918, and he died in 1979. Although he did not spend a lot of time in New York City or Harlem, he was another important artist that was inspired by the uh, Harlem Renaissance and by the writings of Alain Locke. Like Aaron Douglas, he was a wonderful draftsman and educator. And he, and he was educated at the Art Institute of Chicago, and he lived during hard times in the Depression. And it was known that he would use very uncon unconventional media and grounds, like found objects. He would paint on anything that he found. And, and he also worked as a sign painter. You know about that, Sheila, Yes, right? I do. I still love that I was a sign painter. And... Also, Charles White was a teacher of Cary James Marshall. He was his mentor. Absolutely. And, and, um, and you know, he, he taught in high schools, community centers, universities, and then he met the African-American artist Elizabeth Catlett in 1941. And he was working as an illustrator and cartoonist, and he, he was associated himself with many, many social activist groups among black workers and artists with socialist leanings. But then he, he relocated to California for health reasons. And there he taught at the Otis Art Institute that we just talked about that Kerry James Marshall went to. And, there, and then he had a great influence on many African-American artists like Alonzo Davis and, of course, Kerry James Marshall. His greatest work is on the grounds of Hampton University, which is a mural, The Contributions of the Negro to American Democracy. The work depicts famous African Americans that contributed to social change, the arts, and education in the African American community, in, uh, mostly in the 20th century. Well, with me, his drawings and depictions of African Americans that worked the soil are what knocked me out. These earthy figures drawn in earth tones with hard-worked hands and feet and strong bodies, very much, they're done in like chalk and conti crayon. And I show them all the time to my class, uh, even to this day, and especially the, the great masterpiece drawing, The Preacher, from 1952, which is pen and ink on graphite uh, with, on a board. And I could talk about this one drawing for hours, but I won't. And it's a study of foreshortened hands and head and neck and the portrayal of a powerful preacher addressing his congregation. 
I thank the student for educating me to this great American artist, great African-American artist in Charles White, and he inspires me to this day. Well, this show has been a real pleasure to put together. I was able to investigate artists that I love, and now I love them even more. In all our talk about how artists learn, it's clear that art school is only a part of it. It's a small part that points the way to learning. And for me, 60-something years after art school, I'm still learning so much, and almost everything I say on this show is something I've learned that I get to tell you about. It's not dinner table conversation, but it's a great place to talk about art. Amen, Sheila. Well, today we celebrated the lives and legacies of some of our favorite African-American artists. These artists visually conveyed their essence of culture, talent, and vision in unique and beautiful ways. And they also helped me shape my own identity as an artist through experiential experience and cultural shaping, which I deem important to any human being. And we hope you enjoyed the show. Thank you.